Right, so the way that we're going to do the rest of this uh, meeting, uh, we invited Matt to come and uh, speak to us, and he said, um, oh, I prefer to chat to you, Luke. Uh, so we're going to do it like a conversation, so I hope that's all right. We've known each other for years and years and years, and uh, I'm really looking forward to introducing you properly to Woody. I, I, yeah, we, I are, you are called Matt, really, aren't you? But I only <laughs> think of you as Woody. Um, so um, can everybody else call you here Woody? Is that I all right? answer to anything. Really? Literally. <laughs> okay. Am I on so, here? Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, Excellent. I think you, you, are, you are on. It's just that I've got a booming deep voice. <laughs> so, sorry about that. Um, right, so uh, just to, it'd be good to hear some of your story because you're a vicar. Uh, you're, that's a bit of an unexpected thing for you. That you're, you that's not what you came out of the womb wanting to do. Absolutely not. <laughs> so we'll get to that story, and we'll, we'll hear about family and how that's happened and where you've been uh, in your life. And what we're hoping we're to draw out of this interview uh, and our time together is how God calls unlikely people. Um, I think so, so often there's this sort of m false sense that pe certain people are called that are like really holy or something. Um, but God uses ordinary people throughout the Bible and throughout history and throughout today. That's just how he works, isn't it? You, all of us are just people, aren't we? Um, but it's possible for us to think of others as like, oh, well, I couldn't do what they do. So that we're, tr we're trying to rubbish that idea today and trying to get to the, to the forefront of our minds the fact that all of us are called by God, even if we feel unlikely. Um, but before we get into all of that stuff, Woody, let's get to know you a bit, because you, you are also an absolute nut job, aren't you? <laughs> Um, and um, so let me give you some choices, some stuff to think through, um, maybe some quick fire ones. Um, would you rather um, cry milk or sweat cheese? <laughs> I'd r I don't know why, but I'd rather cry milk. Would you? No idea why. Okay. Uh, would you rather have uh, crab claws, um, real crab claws, or actual butter fingers? <laughs> Like real butter fingers. I'd like butter fingers. Would you? Because then you could just get the toast and just... Just be there. Just straight on. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> um, not margarine fingers. <laughs> just butter fingers. Just butter fingers. Um, okay, if you had to be two animals mixed together, you've got okay. the, the front half of one animal and the back <laughs> half of another animal, what would be the combo that you'd go for? I'd like the front half of a badger... <laughs> No one was expecting that. <laughs> the front half of a badger. And the back half of a hippo. <laughs> and what a wonderful creature that would be. Oh, amazing. What do you call it? My mother-in-law. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, Hi, Anna. How are you doing? Uh, Still sorry, all right yeah, over there? I'm joking, Anna. Sorry. No mother-in-law gags. Can I just say, hi, everybody. It's lovely to be here. But I find this communion absolutely brilliant. But it's so funny because the church where I've come from in Hull, a lot of them, the people there were very sort of high Anglo-Catholic. And, and you, you know, you weren't allowed to drop any of the elements. You know, you drop one little bit of wine and someone had burst into flames. You know, any crumb, there'd be someone hoovering it up with their nose. <laughs> and, and on my first, and this is just lovely, it's a real refreshing change, but on my first Sunday where I'm distributing communion wine, they had these massive ch chalices the size of your child, 
and you'd like you'd pass them. And there was this little kid, and I'll never forget, he was wearing a white T-shirt, and he stood at the rail, rail, rail like this. And those, if they went like that, you knew that they wanted to take the chalice off you. And if, and if you had your hands behind your back, you wanted it pouring down your neck. And this lad had his hands out for this massive chalice. And I went, there you go, Lucas. And he went like that. And I dropped this chalice. Boom. <laughs> and it went rolling down this aisle. And there were rivers Clank. of wine. And it looked like it'd been shot. Because <laughs> it had this white, oh, man. So that was the first day. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> but, I, but I share that because I just love this idea that, come on, you know, That's break good. a hunk off. I like the way that you ended that. It was like in Genesis, wasn't it, in the creation? And that was the first day. <laughs> and On he day saw that two. it was good. Yeah. Um, so give us an idea of what you're passionate about and if it, what, what really gets you going. I'm a, pa I'm a passionate person, actually. I, I, that doesn't come across, so if really, you could just try um, and, you know. Well, I'm passionate. I mean, obviously, I'm passionate about my family, my wife, really passionate about you, Anna. We've had a terrible week, um, <laughs> but I love her to death. So I'm passionate about my family, but in terms of other passions, I, I'm, I'm passionate about people. I hoover people up. I hoover people's stories up, and I learn from people all the time. So just, I'm like your extrovert's extrovert, and I just, you know, get me a, a, a room of interesting people. That's me happy. I love sport. I love music. I love art. So, lots of passions. One sport, if you had to choose? One sport. Well, at the minute, is squash, because I've taken it up. But I keep falling out with everybody, because I, <laughs> I used to be love, like, love football. But squash is very... You're basically... Are you in a, in a ladder? Are you, are you trying to work No, you're your in a up? hot box, basically, okay. with two massive rackets. I oh, know, I understand how squash works. Oh, sorry, do you know, do you you know the game, dear? I didn't think you were playing squash on a ladder, although that could be a new <laughs> sport that we could have tried. I was meaning, are you in like a league, you know, where you go? Well, I was, but I'm finding it hard to play with people now. Cause it <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so squash would be my sport at the minute. Okay. One band, if you had to choose. Oasis, every day of the week. Uh, now, I know recently you got to go and see Noel. Noel Gallagher, yeah. On sat last Saturday. Last Saturday night. How good was that? It was a religious experience. I mean, I mean it. I mean, I worship in secular um, concert halls because why not? If he's everywhere, then he's mm. everywhere, right? So you're still, just to be clear, you're not worshiping Noel. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to be clear. But just you know, <laughs> although no, <laughs> don't joke. But yes, yeah, so it. Well, I, I had religious mm. fervor last Saturday night. With Noel Gallagher right in front of me and all these seas of people. I just, I just felt overwhelming joy when I just love that band. Brilliant. That's good. And so tell us a little bit, give us a bit of family background then. Where are you from originally? So I'm a York lad. I grew up in West York and mum and dad and older sister. Is West York commonly known as Acom? Acom, sorry, yeah. yeah. Right. Or Westside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Westside. <laughs> okay. So yes, yeah, so I'm Acom. Oh, yes, Holgate Road, Acombe Road, Acombe, sort of area. area. Grew up around there. And, yeah, a real up-and-down sort of family life, really. Just, yeah, I was, a, I was a bit of a wayward kid. And, yeah, my family loved me. When, you say, when you say you were a wayward kid, because people will be thinking, 
Uh, does that mean sometimes he spoke when he wasn't sp spoken to? No, I, I was that kid. If, you, if I'd walk in as my eight-year-old self, you wouldn't want your kid to play with me. That kind of kid. Wow. Okay. Just so very excitable and unruly and violent. <laughs> <laughs> and so that had some consequences. It had some consequences. Yeah, it was a, my poor mother. It was a nightmare. She used to drag me to church, and I was expelled from Sunday school mm. and Cubs mm. and Scouts. And it was a difficult. Yeah, it was. A, it was for my mum. It was a very difficult sort of child, and I was just just very unruly. She just couldn't control me really. Okay, so and then, but you also went to a, to youth group at St Paul's, and the vicar was Derek Wooldridge. Yeah. So, so tell us a bit about what happened there when you were also being unruly. That was it. Was that youth? Were you a that youth? yeah, sort of just general childhood, really. Um, but yeah, so so up to my teenage years, and and what was interesting about St Paul's, the church I went to, was that Derek, this sort of biggest, uncoolest vicar you could ever imagine, just had grace pouring out of him. And he would run this... He looked, he looked like Woody Allen, didn't he? He did. He looked like Woody Allen. But he, he ran the Friday night church youth club. But it was for everybody. And, and all my mates from school went, we all went. And we made, we made the leader's life. I mean, I don't think how they did it every week. But I was particularly bad. And I would be kicked out of, of this youth club every single Friday. And every single Friday, Derek would let me come back. And there was this one particular Friday, because all the other leaders just basically wanted banning me for life. But there was this one particular Friday, there was an incident with a pool cue and a leader's front tooth. It was an accident. Just an incident with a pool cue. What actually happened? I knocked a leader's front tooth out with a pool cue by accident. Okay. What were you doing that meant it happened by accident? Doing a hilarious Luke Skywalker impression. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Gets to the end of the day, I get kicked out again. Yeah. And one of the leader's took Derek to one side, and he said, Derek, we've got to ban this kid for life. It, it, we just can't, it's either me or him. We can't cope with him anymore. Mm. Derek said, Paul, we need to let him come back. That's what Jesus would have done. Anyway, he's apparently stormed out of Derek's office, and he said, I pity whoever marries that boy Woodcock. And he's now my father-in-law. <laughs> Anna's dad. Paul. So that was Anna's dad. And he wow. still hates me. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't, but yeah, so... People are laughing because they're not sure if that's true <laughs> no, or not. No, it's a true story, yeah. That, so that, that was Anna's dad, so he was one of the volunteers at, at the youth club. Yeah. And that was a long journey up the aisle for Paul <laughs> when he walked Anna up. And all the wedding photos, he's got the best face ever. It's like, oh. <laughs> no, he's fine. Um, what advice would you give, Woody, to your 13-year-old self? Advice would be calm down and be more secure in who you are and who God made you to be. Good advice. So is that because that's something you've discovered to do then? So what's that look like if you into into teenage years and early adult life? What's faith look like for you? Well, faith, I think because my dad was a pretty weird dad. He was there and he wasn't there and it... I think that really, really impacted me, and I, I was craving a father. I was craving a love. So I used, I used to, you know, the older lads and their, you know, I used to sort of cling to them, 
and I just, I just, I never felt that sort of father's love, and I found it in Jesus. One, you know, this period of my life when I was seventeen years old, and I, I just felt this overwhelming sense that I'm loved, and it, and I'm sat here still because of that. Mm. And th- we we went to Crickieth uh, camp. Uh, and so did Anna, and so did Amy. She mentioned that earlier on. Um, maybe other people did as well. And um, we'd go each year, and I remember you shared at, at Derek's funeral, De- the Derek the vicar that you just talked about, uh, that always stuck up for you, and you'd shared that you gave your life to Jesus a record nine years in a row or something. <laughs> Every year I would give my life to Jesus on camp, yeah. Yeah. So it was obviously a profound impact that that had on you. But then also you started to lead. So... Uh, when I turned up to uh, camp, Woody was my leader, and it, and I think I was your first batch, and he was wild. He was uh, maybe you can imagine that, but he was a wild leader. But that is just what I needed, and I think we were just talking about it earlier. He was saying probably some stuff that you know advice that he gave might not have been the best advice <laughs> or whatever. Probably uh, some of the things would have been a bit outrageous, but that's what we needed as. I guess we were about 13, probably, were we? That's just what we needed there and then was to know. And so I could genuinely say, I don't know if I'd be a Christian if it wasn't for Woody because I needed at that point in my life to see you can be a nutter and follow Jesus because I wanted to know that you don't have to just be a good boy and do exactly what you're told all of the time, otherwise you're completely discounted. I wanted to know I could break some rules and I wanted to know I could have some fun as well. And I also saw that in the person of Jesus, and I, I didn't always see that in some of the more boring characters that I knew in church. Then I met Woody and thought, oh, so you can have fun and love Jesus as well. So that's pretty important. But I, I imagine you did, you had that effect on quite a few other people as well in your life. Possibly. I, I, th- I think it, it's not about, it's about being yourself. And I think that I, what I did learn from my leaders at camp was that, God calls us to be entirely ourselves. Not that he doesn't have work to do with us, because crying out loud, I'm spending a lifetime trying to be transformed by him, because I want to be more like him. But we've all been given a character and a personality. And for me, the worst kind of churches try to knock that natural character out of you. Whereas the Jesus I met wanted my character to flourish and to have an impact on people and to call me into all sorts of strange and weird and wonderful places, but to a sense of adventure. And I always tried in my tents. Now, you know, I had that conversation with you earlier because part of me is a little bit embarrassed because maybe of some of the choices and some of the things that we did that we probably shouldn't have done. No, nothing dodgy, but just, you know, just immature things. And I, and I look back, you know, wincing half the time. But actually, that's who it was then. Mm. So I think that, that that authenticity of character, I think, is what Jesus is looking for in us. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. So, so then you felt, did you, f- then you became a journalist in your early career, right? Yes. Did you feel called into that? Or is that something you thought, I'll be good at? Or how come you went in to be a journalist? I, I did feel called to it. I, 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 I sort of did that whole uni thing. I did, I did university, came back from uni, had my bit of paper that, was a politics degree, right? Wh- wh- right, wh- and uh, you know, naively thought, right, where's the job? Mm. Well, there wasn't one. I was working in a coleslaw factory, 
and my dad. Well, that was a job. That was a story. It that was a job. If you work in a coleslaw factory, that's not. I am not being disparaging. It's just not what you hope it's for. It's just not what I'd hope for. With your politics. So, what, but, what? But my dad was this big shot journalist for the Daily Mail and the Sunday Express. And he said, why don't you write something, a holiday article? So I, I wrote this article. Anyway, cut a long story short, this article went in the Yorkshire Post and I saw my name in the paper. Hallel, and and that, was the, that was the Eureka moment. Right. So I went to journalism college, started work for the evening press, and I, f I felt I'd found my calling in life. And... Um, how long did you do that for then? I did that for seven years, and they were the greatest seven years of my life. All oh, right. What about now? D now is a from different there, was it? kind of greatness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love how you just say stuff and then you can't walk it back. Um, so you had fun during that seven years, and then uh, using that communication gift, I guess, you must have learned loads of tools, because then you went to work for the Archbishop, is that right? Well, it was a... It was a it, journalism, done well, is all about people. And unlike what I do now, often you weren't given... You know, they weren't expecting you to knock on their door and ask for a story. And a lot of journalism is taking from people, taking people's stories, it, persuading them to, for you to tell me your story so I can get it in the paper. And I loved it. I mean, I was a maniac. I mean, I, I would have saw my old grandma for a story. <laughs> I mean, I loved it. It was the greatest. And I don't, it wasn't like the tabloidy where you're phone tapping. It was face-to-face it was -face with people at their, at their greatest moments of joy and at their worst moments of despair. And looking back, I don't think there was a better training ground for me. Hmm. I think on my first week as a journalist, we got a call in. A 17-year-old lad had been killed on a motorbike. And I was sent to the family home to knock on their door, completely cold, first week of journalism, and ask if they wanted to do a tribute. I'll never forget it. I knocked on this door, grieving mum comes to the door, crying, come in, love. Notepad out, I've got the entire family round me, wailing, crying at the top of their voice. And, I, and I'm trying to write things in a notebook about their son. I mean, talk about a training ground for life. Mm. Anyway, now, when I look back, I see what kind of God was doing, because now most of the time I've got permission to go in people's houses <laughs> with the old dog collar on and, and be there for them. But, I mean, how, how it happened was I, was, I loved being a journalist, and I'm dry, I say St. Paul had the road to Damascus, I had the A19 to Selby. <laughs> and I'm on my way to cover this court case in Selby. And I'll never forget it. I'm listening to you two. I don't know why I remember that, but I was. Because it was such a normal day. And I got hit on that road by a road to Damascus moment. I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. But I was hit by God big time. And I'm not particularly sort of charismatic. That hasn't happened to me. It's never happened since. But I just had this overwhelming feeling that I was going to that I didn't, I, did, I just, I, I lost control of my senses. So I pulled into this lay-by and I prayed to God. I said, whatever you're doing, please can you tell me because I'm absolutely terrified. I'm shaking. You too, so I'll turn that off. And I said, but will you tell me quickly because I've got a court case to go and cover in Selby. <laughs> anyway, I calmed myself down, took a breath, carried on. 
finished the day and then legged it to my vicar's house that night. And I'll never forget it. He was a rotund man. And he, was, he sat sort of bit on his desk. And I burst into his office. And he turned. And I never said anything to him. And he said, Woody, do you think like you should be working for the church? And it was like, ha! It was literally like, like that. Yeah. I've never been so convinced of anything in my life. Me and Anna have just got a big mortgage. She's loving the garden. We're, you know, the times were really good. I was earning a lot of money. And I ran home, and I said to Anna, Anna, I think God's calling me to leave journalism and work for the church soon. And all the color drained from her face, bless her. <laughs> and it was a, oh man, it's so hard for her. And she gave me a blessing eventually. And within a month, I'm sat as the new church evangelist, working for something like five grand a year in this church, just like, so what do you do? So what, what does an evangelist do? And it was like everybody at the press thought I'd lost my mind. You've got to imagine I was this sort of hack. Suddenly, a month later, I'm sat there. Then I get a phone call from the archbishop, and he says, why don't you come and do a couple of days with me? And by the end of that month, I'm earning more money working for the church than I was for journalism. Not that it's about the money, but this is the important thing, that he never, God never leaves us short. Mm. He never leaves us short. And that first week, working for the church, I'm thinking, what do you do? Got a phone call from a painter and decorator who thought he'd have a, a religious experience, but he wasn't sure. Will I meet him? in a park, because he didn't want to come into church. So it was like a first date, I put my red carnation on. <laughs> Met this painter and decorator on this park bench. Talked to him about Jesus. He comes on my course. He gives his life to Jesus. What's your course? It was, a, it was an exploring Christianity course. Okay. And then my colleague, who was a raging alcoholic, I found him comatose in his flat full of vodka bottles. He came to know Jesus, not had a drop to drink oh, since. that was a colleague from the press. My boss at the press. Right. And, and suddenly, and these are all dramatic things, but sometimes you need the dramatic to happen quite quickly because it's like, ah, oh, that's why. Hmm. And suddenly these particularly men started coming to faith and, that, and, that's, and then I knew then. Hmm. So then you thought about ordination or getting ordained or something, yeah, becoming a vicar. Well, Sentimu basically said, you've come this far, I want you to get ordained. Okay. Will you think about it? <laughs> <laughs> right. So you did, and went, yes. Well, not really, no, because the idea of having a dog collar on my neck for a living, oh, man, I just, I just didn't want to do it. And I said to him, I said, I will push the door, but, only, but I am going to be totally myself, and I'm going to speak like I speak, and do what I do, and be who I am, and if that door comes swinging open, then I'll know that it's right. Mm. And he went, fair enough. Okay. And annoyingly, yeah. boom, boom, every door. So you went to Durham. Durham. And you trained there. And then tell us a bit about Hull. You went, you, then you went to Hull. So I was ordained, I'm, I'm ordained as what's called a pioneer minister, which you start sort of new communities. very much similar, I guess, to, to what you're trying to do. You, you, you're given permission to try new things. But I was sent to this 
cathedral-sized church called Holy Trinity. It's the biggest parish church in the country. I mean, I used to call it God's aircraft hangar. When I used to go for, I mean, don't tell anybody, but I used to cycle inside the church. <laughs> and me, me and the Elapsed. youth worker, he would start on one side, and I would start on the other. It was like <laughs> one of those velodromes. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. You try and catch each other. But I got busted one time by the church warden. <laughs> and we're like, proper having this race around. Anyway. <laughs> but it was dying. And the Bishop of Hull phoned me and he said, um, will you have a go at trying to turn this place around? It's losing £1,000 a week. Nobody's coming. The average age is 108. Um, <laughs> we do formal worship. You know, a hymn from 1737 is about as contemporary as we do. The family service, well, there's just no family. Will you come and have a go? Mm. Right in the centre of Hull, I went to visit pubs, nightclubs, boxing clubs. All. I thought, yes, this is for me. Surrounded by real people, I guess. Surrounded by real people with a license mm. to have a go and try stuff. Mm. And it was like, ding, 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 ding. That's mm. for me. That was the boxing club. That was the boxing club. <laughs> and you got to know some boxers, didn't you? We d I did. The, the boxing club is right opposite the church. And nobody from the church had ever been inside. So my first day, I went, I'll go wow. meet the parish. Anyway, if you've never been in a boxing club, they're very intimidating places, particularly in Hull. The average nose looks like that. <laughs> and that's just the women. And, um, and you walk in, and I walked into this boxing club, and there was this booming music. <laughs> People are slamming. And it was like, I had a dog collar on. And I went, and the whole place just stopped. I went, hiya, I'm one of the new vicars from Holy Trinity. <laughs> Everyone all right? And this voice came from that, one of the coaches. He said, are you from Holy Trinity? I went, yeah. He went, be mean to speak to someone from Holy Trinity. Thank you, come in. Well, he, you know, by the end of the week, I'd be, I'd, I, you know, I was hitting bags, I'd joined the training. I'm praying for this guy hiding behind a car because he didn't want anyone to see that he could have children. and It was just amazing. Mm. And that's the kind of doors that God began to open in, in Hull City Centre. And while that was going on, just share with us a little bit as well about how personal life wasn't always easy, particularly about children. That wasn't easy. So can you share a little bit of that story too? Yeah, I mean, um, a few years ago, my wife and I were trying like mad for... Um, <laughs> I'll rephrase that. <laughs> we wanted children. We desired and, children. And you were prepared to put the hard we work were, in. I see what you're saying. <laughs> okay. That's completely inappropriate. <laughs> Sorry. We'd been trying and nothing was happening. And obviously, as a bloke, the natural thing is, you think, well, it's not my fault. Obviously, it's Anna's the one with the issue. So we sent her off for tests. She had probes and all that, all that stuff. All came back fine. She went, well, do you, think you should have a, do you think you should get checked out? And I went, don't be ridiculous. So I went and got checked out, went into the clinic, and the doctor's there with my test tube. He said, Matt, the average bloke produces 40 million sperm per sample. We've found 30 in yours. I'm thinking, brilliant, 30, that's not 30 million, that's not too bad. He said, no, we've found 30, and they're all terrible swimmers. <laughs> Isn't he that said, what he said? That's what he said, terrible beds. Terrible he said, swimmers. unfortunately, I've got to break it to you that you'll never have children. Wow. And we were just, I mean, yeah, you can imagine. So that was awful for a long, long time. And... Um, 
And I've got a very long story short. We began on the IVF journey. Nothing happened. And it's £4,000 per girl. Well, we don't have that kind of money. And um, we thought all was lost. And, um, and then I got this email from a vague Christian friend. And he said, I've heard about your plight. I'd like to pay for you and your wife to have another girl of IVF because I think that God wants to bless you with children. I went, you're joking. We waited up. We had, we, we had another girl. It didn't work. Awful. Anyone who's been through IVF, anyone who can't have kids, it's just awful. So I got home. We grieved. We cried all the tears and all the rest of it. And I sent him an email, the guy who paid for it. I said, I'm really sorry, John. It, it, it hasn't worked. He went, Matt, I'd always budgeted for two girls. Have another girl. And we had twins. Wow. And I haven't slept since. (laughs) (laughs) And And I just... But that whole generosity of that man, God was... Mm. We began to... You know, anyway. So that was in Hull when you got pregnant. Is that right? No, we just had them. Okay, so you then went to Hull. Then you came back fairly recently, and now you're working with the Church of England, and you're based in Lehman Road area. So right? you sent Barnabas, soon to be St. Paul's, and there's this massive new development going to be built called the Teardrop, and 5,000 homes are going to be built. My job is to create a new church, and very, very similar to what Christian was called to do, and yourself with G2, came out of St. Mike's mm. and did your thing. So that's, that's the plan for the next five years. And Woody, why do you think God calls people like you? Why did God call unlikely people? Why does he enjoy it? I, I think God calls people. And you know what? In many ways, I know I'm quite an extreme character. But I am me. And he's called me to be me. And he's called you to be you. And he's called you all to be who you are. And as soon as we try to stop being that person, I think that's when it, it gets wound up. But when we look in the Bible, it's so interesting because, do you know what? The Bible, the Bible must be true for me. I know that's a silly thing to say for a vicar. Because you wouldn't make that up. You wouldn't make up the people he called. They'd be far more normal. They'd be far less murderers, prostitutes, stutterers, flawed people. You wouldn't make them up. And the extraordinary thing about God is, out of all our brokenness, he does something beautiful if we let him. If we let him. And I'll never forget the first, the first six months at Holy Trinity in Hull was just so hard. Because I was praying all the prayers. I was, I was getting out there. I was doing everything I'd been told to do and been called to do. And nothing was growing. If you can imagine, Holy Trinity, it goes on for about four years that way. Just, and the family service was the most tragic moment of my week. You'd have to put on the dress. And you'd come out. And there'd be the same faces. Reg would be sat there. Marjorie would be four miles back. Sydney, and I can picture them now. And nothing was growing, Luke. Nothing was growing. And I tried everything. And nothing was happening. And then this one particular Sunday, I came out. Morning, Marjorie. Hiya, Sid. You don't want to 
sit down here. No, it's fine. And I looked over and I began to say the Anglican words. You know, something like, Lord, set our hearts on fire with love for you. And Reggie's like, <laughs> and I look to the left of me, and there's a lad sat there who was under 80. It was incredible. 23 year old student, he looked like Shaggy from Scooby Doo. I couldn't believe he was in the church. And he sat there, clearly a student. Service finishes. And he does that thing that new people do. Run out. Anyway, I sprinted, fully robed, rugby tackled him, <laughs> grabbed his throat and said, what are you doing here? I didn't quite do that, but I did take him out for coffee. And it turned out this lad had got hammered the night before, two nights before, never been to church in his life, suddenly felt like he wanted to go to church. So he goes to Hull Tourist Information Centre, because where do you find a church if you don't know where, if you've never been before? And he went, I'd like a church, please. The woman went, what? Uh, have you tried the big one down the road? It's called Holy Trinity. That coffee turned into a disciple, you know, a course came on. Danny becomes a Christian, gets confirmed, joins the worship band. No, becomes the worship band. He was the worship band. <laughs> then he invites his girlfriend. She becomes... And all this stuff began to happen. Now, Danny, this lad, is training for ministry. In the Baptist church, the selfish sod. <laughs> <laughs> all that work! Hours of it! Hours of it! No one saw that coming, Woody. But the, um, but the point is, I think it's this holy <laughs> desperation, how unlikely you might feel in your walk with God, how, how called you are, yeah. do you have that desire that you are still going to get yourself up in whatever context and pray, Lord, this can't be it? Brilliant. Right. We're going to get you chatting. Uh, which bit, chat to the person next to you, which bit from what Woody shared today so far will you remember? Which story stuck out to you or which moment did you think, ah, that was good? So chat to the person next to you about a couple of minutes, and then we're going to finish off with a final reflection. So to finish off, Matt's going to share a little bit from Matthew um, 4, as we heard earlier. Uh, Matt, over to you. Lovely. Have you all got a postcard? Wonderful. Can I just say that just, I had a lovely view of those getting baptised and your faces, oh, when you came out of that water, I was weeping. I wasn't impressed with Christian though. There's different ways of baptising people, right? It's like plumbing, it's like an action movie. Hey, hey, chill out. I thought you were going to drown that poor lass. She came out gagging like this. Plumbing is so aggressive. Prayer ministry, Ben, yeah? I mean, needs it. Okay. I need to calm down. I've had too much coke. There's no Diet Coke left. I'm just... Okay. So, so as I've said, this Bible narrative, as Luke was saying, full of unlikely people. Rahab, Moses, Noah, David, Mary Magdalene, Saul, Samson, John the Baptist, lunatics, prostitutes, stammerers, violent sex, mad hippies. Full of them. And I just want to quickly share with you two of the unlikely people I identify with. And I think 
hope it's got something to say to you all. You've heard the Bible verse passage. Jesus arrives beside this great lake into the middle of Peter and Andrew's ordinary day. And you'll have heard, it's really quick. It's like, will you follow me? Yeah, we'll go, and, and, and off they go. There's no hesitation. They're like a bit like Christian, his baptism technique. They're in, boom, they're out. But I wonder, you know, whether that was the whole story. Because what I've found with the Bible is the importance of using our imaginations, of reading these sort of often short, abrupt gospel passages through the lens of what we're actually like as human beings. So yes, there was a call, ultimately there was a follow, but I can only guess that that was perhaps not the whole story. And this is where I've found religious paintings to be enormously helpful. I don't know if you're into art, but this is a painting by a, a painter called Caravaggio. Sounds like he should be playing up front for AC Milan. But he was, he was an incredible painter. And this picture has been like my spiritual muse for like the last 10 years or so. There's actually, I'm, I'm actually thinking of writing a book about it because it's quite an unknown one of Caravaggio's done loads. He's in the National Gallery. You'll know the, probably the Supper of Emmaus is one of his famous ones. But this is quite an unknown one, and it was actually thought to be worthless. It was found in the Queen's loft. So she does that, or her equivalent of a loft, you know, where she keeps all her treasures. Anyway, her and Philip had a clear out one day, and they got some of their people to have a clear out of their loft. And they found this, and they thought, well, we'd better send it to Rome just to see, you know, how much it's worth and, you know, whether it can sort out Charles's um, retirement plan. And anyway, they cleaned it up. And they found that it's one of his masterpieces, and it's worth 55 million quid, and it now hangs in Hampton Court Palace. So check your loft! But Caravaggio revolutionised the way people painted. He was a man himself with many, many demons, and yet he, for me, captured the earthly reality of Jesus Christ and people's human reaction to him better than anyone else I've ever seen. And this is called the calling of St. Peter and St. Andrew. And Caravaggio's imagining what that passage that you've heard read might have looked like in reality. He sorts of fills in the blanks between the call and the follow. So let's take a closer look. This is Caravaggio's Jesus on the right. You'll notice he looks boyish, feminine almost, looks like a woman. And you can see there's a motion and an urgency to him. He's pointing the way, he's turning back. It's almost like you can almost feel him walking out the picture. I'm off this way, are you coming with me? And he's walking out the picture. The guy in the middle is Andrew with the ginger beard. And he's pointing to his chest, you'll see, in almost shocked disbelief that Jesus would call him to follow him. It's as if he's saying, who me? 
you cannot mean me. I don't pray. I'm not holy. I just fish. And on the end is Caravaggio's Peter. And he imagines him to be this big, powerful man. You'll notice the muscles bursting out of his neck where he's been pulling in those nets day after day. And just under his clothes, you'll see, he's got one hand out open, ready to follow. It's like, okay, I am, I am so with you, I'm off. I'm coming with you. And that was Peter. That was a massive part of his character. He was impulsive. He was passionate. He was headstrong. He was heartstrong. He's going for it. He's one of Christians' muscular baptism victims. I'm in. I'm in. But look at his other hand for me. Look at his other hand. Because there was another side to Peter. In his other hand, and you can almost see the whites of his knuckles, he is holding his catch of the day, his fish, like gripping them. Almost like. He can't let go. He's weighing up whether he can actually go with the other hand. And for me, there's something about Peter's fish that represent safety or familiarity or comfort. The fish are perhaps a symbol of his own baggage or his own brokenness or his sense of unworthiness. Why would he call me? I I don't trust that hand. I'm just... To let go of those fish for this man meant letting go of everything he knew and held dear. Your story really reminded me of him. This sense, I've got this life. And if I'm... And you dropped him. I was 17 when I became a Christian. It happened one night on my bed, and I don't know why it was that night. It just, I sat on my bed. No, in the morning, I, I woke up and thought, right, if you're real, God, I've seen you at this camp. I've seen you at a bit of church. I need to know if you're real. And I quite fancied these two twins who were mad on Jesus, but I really fancied one of them. So I thought, I'll go and get them to pray for me, and I'll ask them out of God. And at worst, I'll get a snog off Jenny. I went round to the house, they prayed for me, nothing happened, didn't get a snog, came home fuming. Sat on my bed, and I went, right God, I'll give you one more time. Are you real? I need to know. Got my Bible, boom, Matthew 7, asking you shall receive. Don't ever do it like that, it was a bad way to do it, but it worked for me. That was it. And I ran down and told my sister, I said, Amy, I've become a Christian. She went, bugger off, I'm watching EastEnders, it'll never last. But it did last. And as I've gone along the Christian journey, good times and bad times, highs and lows, I've realized that I have a tendency to hold on to loads of fish. Some I've dropped, some new ones I've picked up along the way. But what I've realized ministering to people and being part of sort of Christian leadership is so many of us hold on to things that prevent us being the men and the women and the boys and the girls 
who we are called to be. And sometimes that's because of fear and insecurity and worry and busyness or unforgiveness. We grip these fish. Now, it dawned on me that I identify with different people in that picture at different times, and I, and I strongly suggest that you put it somewhere where you can see it and just let it speak to you. Let it speak to you. What I realized was that none of us are worthy to go with this man. None of us are. And yet he still calls every single one of us in here right now. Some of you have gone some of the way with him. Some of you haven't. Some of you are thinking, no, not, not me. It's great for, great for my friends. It's just, I just, it can't mean me. Some of you, I've got so far, and you just can't get any further. There's just something. Some of you have probably never given it a second thought. But you might have just seen their faces. Something in them is so real and beautiful and profound when they came out of that water. And for me, just to finish, it's all about that finger. You can read the whole of the Gospels. There's four of them. Have a read. They're brilliant. But the, basically, the whole of the Gospel narrative, just like this thing, just like this picture does, it's sort of an arrow, and it all sort of arrows down to that finger. And the whole of the Gospels arrow down to that finger. And the whole of church life, in some ways, arrows down to that finger. That says, follow me. It's so simple in so many ways. And yet, unbelievably profound. And when I wake up every morning, I've got this blown up massively in my office. I look at those fish. And I look at his finger. And I make a choice. I make a choice to drop him and trust him and go with him and know I'm loved and know he's going to take me somewhere that's going to bring me real life, not broken life. And I just simply, I'm not here to sort of give you the hard sell, but I am here to tell you that what he said to these two northern Rough-assed blokes, two, however many years ago, he's actually still saying to us now. And I felt like diving in there with you. And I'm pretty sure that some of you might have just felt, you want to dive in with them. You know you can, don't you? You know you can. Do you mind if I pray? Why don't we stand? Can the band come up as well? Is that all right? And then Matt, will you pray for us? That'd be I will brilliant. Do. Yeah. Let's just all have a moment. You might want to look at your postcard. You might want to look at this picture. And I want you to be really honest with yourself as I pray about where represents you here. Because there's movement. There's movement. And I just believe for all of us, maybe there's some movement to go on tonight.
So let me pray. Oh, Father God, I thank you so much for everyone in this building right now. You know them. You love them. And you call each one of us to follow you. And I pray for the people who are holding their chest or pointing to their chest going, who me? I pray that they might know, yes, you. Follow me. And I pray for those people tonight who are hanging on to some fish, to some sense of unworthiness, to some brokenness that they've never managed to mend in their own strength. I pray that they would hear the words, follow me, and that they would drop what they're carrying right now and go with you, Lord. May each of us experience your joy and your life in all its fullness. And trust that that finger is going to lead us somewhere beyond our imaginings. And I'm just going to say amen, which means I agree. And this could be the most important amen of your life. We all said together, amen. If you have thought, yeah, I do want to get baptised, um, then you can do that. Um, can I ask you to come and chat to Christian? He's going to be over here. You can chat to Annabelle as well. Um, just come and chat to him and, then, and we can do that. And then we'll all come out, all, all go outside again. You can get dunked. That can happen. Um, let's worship God together now, shall we?